One of the questions I'm always asking myself is, where does my attention belong? Where should I be focusing my attention? For the past several years, my attention has been on several noble causes, healing, becoming a better version of myself, becoming a kinder, more patient, loving father, becoming a kinder, loving, more patient friend, and becoming someone who is better at taking the stuff happening inside of me, the work that wants to come out of me, and sharing that with the world. And there's been lots of amazing progress and success. However, none of the success of the past four years really compares to the past year. And unfortunately for my ego and my self-esteem, I can't take much credit for it. This is by far the happiest, most productive, most enjoyable year that I can remember. And it has to do less with what I thought, what I did, and what was happening in my life, and more about how I set up the situations that I was going into. It all has to do with being part of a community. We've created the book club or study hall club or whatever you want to call it, just a group of listeners and now friends who I meet with regularly. That really changed the creative process for me is get to speak with people who enjoy my work and also get to know them and in a sense, get to know who I'm speaking to when I do a podcast like this. I also invited a business partner, actually two business partners, to join in on this endeavor and to do this struggle with me. I got a therapist I love, and I joined more communities and more groups for all the things that I wanted to do. I'm part of a writer's group. I'm a part of the book club, as I mentioned before. I'm a part of recovery groups. So today, when I'm recording this, I am recently just out of the worst depression of the year, which lasted about seven days, and I would rate it about a seven out of 10 in terms of how excruciating and awful it was. And it had me reflecting about how miraculous that is, that the worst this year got was a seven-day depression. And I've been very carefully tracking my mood and energy levels since my last kind of big crash two years ago. And that's pretty amazing. And it all has to do with belonging. Today's guest, Jeffrey Cohen, is a professor at Stanford. He doesn't necessarily know it yet, but I'm actually going to uh, work on making him a new friend because I really like him. And he wrote a great book called Belonging that I almost instantly knew was going to be a good fit for this show. Here's my take on why you should take belonging seriously before we jump into the episode. Maslow's hierarchy of needs puts love and belonging about halfway up his pyramid, which you've probably seen before. It has physiological needs at the bottom, has safety needs just above that, kind of love and belonging, then esteem, then self-actualization. For the past several years, I've put a lot of effort in the self-actualizing category, and it could have benefited me to actually work more foundationally now that I know the impact that it's had on my mood. But here's the deal. That love and belonging is artificially up the tree. Today in the modern world, we have food available at grocery stores. We have water on tap. We have so many of our needs kind of covered that we can pretend that we're independent creatures, but we're not. 
10,000 years ago, your belonging and your being with a pack of other upright mammals like yourself was part of safety. It was built into the physiological needs. You probably weren't going to survive without your pack. Somewhere along the line, we decided, well, I guess we can physically survive without having a pack of humans that we belong to. So that's a luxury. Well, if you're like me, life can get really, really challenging at times. I would say it's not a luxury. It's actually a necessity. And I would challenge you to start to build community. Here's the prompt that I'll leave you with just to think about while this episode plays and while you go out into your life as you listen to this. Who do you belong to? You belong to yourself, hopefully. I hope that's true for you, that you know that you belong to you and your time is yours and your soul, if you believe in a soul, is yours and your spirit, your creativity, that belongs to you. You belong to your family or family of choice, people you love the most, the people that you want to spend time with, the people that you feel connected to. What's out past that next rung? Your community, your town, your city, your state, your country, your planet? And so when I say, who do you belong to? I want you to feel your natural settling in to, I belong to myself and I belong to my friends and my family. And that's about normally where I sit. My challenge to you is to start thinking about how can you expand to the next outer rung? How can you belong to your town and your town's success and your town's health or your state? I'm not there yet, but maybe you are. Maybe you have belonged to your town for longer than I have. And start to think about how you can use your conscious mind and your physical body to start creating a greater sense of belonging. I really believe that we belong to each other. I believe that the sooner you look at the people who fundamentally ideologically disagree with you on foundational levels and start to imagine how you can belong to each other and how you can coexist, this is kind of classical liberalism. This is not a political idea, but the idea of how can we coexist together and share this world that we have and belong to each other, I think that's the next frontier of the human race. We've already discovered every square inch of the planet. How do we discover how we can truly coexist? How can we make communities tighter? Somebody to help prime that conversation is a new friend and brilliant mind, Jeffrey Cohen of Stanford University. Here is our conversation on belonging and on his life of becoming somebody who studies the science of belonging. Jeff, thanks for coming down. You're one of the first people who I like don't know who's made the trip out to the studio. What used to happen is in the early days, I would fly out to the guests. Wherever they were, I would just meet them there. And then during COVID, of course, we had to concede to virtual. And then now we built a beautiful new studio. And what had happened is I kind of got burnt out of celebrities and influencers Mm. and thought leaders and the like. Mm. And so the last bunch of episodes have just been regular people who I love. So you're like a first official guest. Wow. I am so honored. And I, you know, I took the drive up here. It was really beautiful out and really honored and delighted to be here. So I think you'll appreciate this, which is the last time we recorded a podcast here, the furniture was laid out differently we were like angled more towards the camera yeah and it had this very chill oh yeah today show kind of vibe yeah i noticed nobody was crying 
right? And that was like a sign to me that we weren't dropping in as deep as we used to. Oh, okay. Interesting. And so I told Reese, we might have to get rid of these chairs, but I was like, you know what? I'm sitting in this chair like a cool guy and that's not our show. Yeah. Like, let's turn the chairs closer. Let's get eye to eye and like, let's really try and drop in a bit deeper. True. Like the orientation, the physical orientation of the layout can make such a difference. The so, power of the situation and an angle can really make a big difference. So you're the first experiment with this situation crafting. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a willing guinea pig. I know I, I prefer intimacy and yeah, maybe I'll cry. Who knows? Maybe, maybe yeah, I'll cry. Maybe yeah. we'll both cry. <laughs> I like to start the show the same way every single time. This can be as big or small of a question as you'd like, but but Jeff, who are you? Mm. I am a social psychologist. I'm an academic, a professor. I'm also a father, and I'm a New Jersey native. So I would say those three things come most spontaneously to mind. As a social psychologist, I study the power of situations to influence people's thoughts, feelings, and behavior. As a father, I really have seen firsthand how important some of the lessons I study really are and learned a ton in the process. As a New Jersey native, I just take pride in New Jersey culture and Tell trying me. to bring it out West. Tell me about that. <laughs> it's hard to describe. I think New Jersey is such an interesting, heterogeneous place. I'm, I'm really glad I grew up there, though at the time when I was growing up, it was a little dry and boring. I, I, I lived out in the suburbs, but really it was more like farming fields right near this kind of vast cornfield. There were, weren't many houses around, and I grew up pretty isolated from other kids, with the exception of my best friend who lived down the street about a quarter mile away. But then the culture of New Jersey is just, it's kind of interesting. I'm not quite sure. You know, it's where Bruce Springsteen came from, of course, and Bon Jovi, uh, it's a little kind of rugged and aspirational, like kind of that idea of always like looking over the Hudson at New York City and feeling, yeah, I want to be that, but I'm not that. And that tension is kind of part of what it means to be in New Jersey, New Jerseyan, I think. So when you're, you raised your kids on the West Coast? I Mostly on the West Coast. Okay. I, I spent a long time in New Haven. My kids were born there. And then... We lived in Colorado, Boulder, Colorado, for a little bit, the Mountain West, and then came out here. And now they're both college age, so, so as I'm all done. As you're <laughs> rearing these children, not in New Jersey, like before we get to your research, mm -hmm. I'm curious to know what New Jersey wisdom or vibe are you trying to imbue on them? Hi, that is very interesting. Well, it's, it, okay, I'm thinking a lot here, but... I, and it wasn't a conscious attempt. I, I think all coasts and cultures are really interesting. But there is something about uh, New Jersey, maybe New York culture, where it's like more candid, more authentic, more direct. You're born yourself and you don't mind expressing yourself, even if your opinions might be a little bit different. And you feel as though we can say this because the relationship can take it. Whereas perhaps in other places, other cultures, understandably, sometimes it's a little more superficial and you want to just kind of keep the positive flow going. And so people don't disagree as much. So I grew up in New Jersey feeling like, is this what people do around the dinner table all the time? Are you? <laughs> and and, there, and there, there, there's definitely problems with it. I always have the feeling that, I don't know, maybe people could listen a little better there, at least in, in the kind of social occasions I went to with much of my family. I really do like that East Coast culture. And it might be partly East Coast Jewish culture too, where there's an authenticity there. 
and an affirmation of the relationship through authenticity. I can say what I feel, even if it might be a little objectionable, and a relationship can take it. And it's a sign that I believe in us. I kind of think disagreement is an interesting thing that perhaps is better negotiated in the East Coast culture, and maybe something I try to unconsciously ingrain in my kids or teach them. Wow. Yeah, I just came from an experience where honest feedback was a part of it. And you don't know any of these participants in this experience. And so people are saying to me, who have never met me, like, I experience you as violent. I experience uh, you as a bully. I experience you as phony, right? And it was like so jarring. And then the facilitator of this experience is going, you're a leader. You want, you want rapid feedback all the time. When you go out of these rooms and you go into the world, you want to invite feedback often. Mm. Don't be afraid of this. When it's your turn to, to talk to people, not to hold back. And they're like, that's not helping anyone here. Yeah, it was, yeah. It's maybe a little bit of that New Jersey vibe. It, it's kind of New, yeah. it's East Coast vibe, maybe. Yeah, yeah. I kind of think so. You know, we kind of live in a culture now with such, you know, America's got interesting in this way, such a kind of wide-ranging diversity, sensibilities, people from different backgrounds that I think there's so much room for misunderstanding. Like, I think you can do that kind of feedback when, there's trust, right? People yeah. kind of trust each other. And that's perhaps a, a bit easier in a more homogeneous setting, or at least like where we're kind of coming from the same place, or we know we're coming from the same place. One of the things I'm just really interested in is in a diverse society, how do you, you do that? How do you have authentic relationships in a diverse society where people just have different backgrounds, different experiences, different sensitivities? It feels like there's a lot to get through, get past, and so much potential for misunderstanding. It has probably a lot to do with your research. It's that we really, we want to belong. So yeah. there's a fear of creating waves. There's a fear that if you said the wrong thing or did the wrong thing or didn't agree with the flavor of the month in terms of stances you could take that you might lose your standing, what I would call like the shell of community that we have these days. I don't think we have done a good job of building strong communities. I live in a very small town life hmm. out here in West Marin, and it's probably as good as it gets, you know, in terms of you walk through and you, you know people by name and there's a sense of community. But I've said this on this program before, there's almost like a church-sized hole. I'm not a church guy. Yeah. But the idea of like a place where everyone gathers, you see the same people week after week, you see them grow, you see them fall. There's a place where we all kind of rub on each other and shape each other a little bit. If the carpenter is doing bad work, he has to come face the congregation mm -hmm. and face the judgment of the group at some point has to reintegrate back into the group there has to be some kind of way for him to go all right i'm sorry i'm you know? sorry yeah yeah, yeah. re-accept me i'll make amends right i'll change i'll improve i i think that's true i mean do you think as america america probably has less of that i think yeah. than perhaps other cultures i mean i don't really study culture but i find it very interesting like i, I spent a little time in madrid in spain and I was just, I just noted or observed just how much more communal it is. It feels people are out and about. There's a sort of plaza, open plazas where people just congregate, see each other spontaneously. It's not as planned. And it kind of goes on. My friend who's uh, Spanish, who's kind of like a mentor to me, said, yeah, in Spain, we have this saying. I'm like, why? I was asking him, like, how long do people stay out? Well, how long does a party last? How long does an occasion last? And he's like, in Spain, we have a saying, time is in the heart. Time is in the heart. You stay as long as you feel, and you feel it. It's like, wow, that is interesting. Because I think in America, it's much more individualistic, and we kind of have our own selves that we're kind of constantly working on improving and exercising, engaging all the self-improvement. 
that idea of, no, this is just woven into my life. Connection is its own reward. I'm just going to go out and do it. Is I really do miss that. I miss that. I like that. I like that. And I wish there was more of that. And maybe it's a reaction to my New Jersey heritage where I grew up in the kind of remote farmland. I, I do really enjoy community and that kind of close city life. I think I, I'm more of a city person, but I, I think it applies to small communities as well, where you're out and about and you connect. And connection is its own reward. And I think as Americans, we don't quite get that. We're a little off. Our theories of what makes us happy are a little wrong. We think that it's all about status and our individuality and pursuing our passions and dreams. And that stuff, sure, is important. But I think we really underestimate the importance of connection and being with people. I, I don't know if you find this in your day-to-day life. And there's research that supports this. But I was fine. Like, I could be like ruminating in my apartment, trapped in my own worries, and feel like the world is getting overwhelming. Then... I'll go out to the cafe or maybe a local bar and just talk with some friends. All of a sudden, that fog lifts, that mental fog lifts, and feel a little more energized to feel better. Nothing was really addressed that helped me deal with my problems, but just feel better. And there's like kind of energizing effect to being with other people. There's actually now research out there in psychology showing that, yeah, and not being at work has this problem where you're just not bumping into people and having those passive, pleasant contacts that turn out to be really important to not just creativity, but your own well-being. Yeah. I've been doing extracurricular extroverting. Hmm. I saw a study and it was basically, it was based off like the, the big five model of personality. And they're basically like, yeah, the higher you score on extroversion, the higher you self-rate your happiness. Interesting. And I thought, that's fucked up. Because <laughs> you know, I'm such an introvert. Yeah. I've been, I've been going out extroverting, even though it's not what I want to do in the moment. And I would say that it is actually elevating my mood. I also, I started this project completely alone and I ended up just miserable. And it got to the point to where what happened is a friend of mine asked me to redo siding on the side of his house. And I was like exhausted every day. But something about this labor sounded good. I haven't worked construction in years. Mm -hmm. I don't think he knew I didn't work construction. It was like a friend (laughs) from a cafe. Mm-hmm. And he's like, hey, you build. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I build. I have all my tools. <laughs> yeah, let's try it. Yeah. So I was with these laborers putting up siding on his house. We had barely any shared language. And I just felt all this energy in a way that I wasn't when I was coming back to do the podcast. Mm-hmm. And I told my therapist and he's like, you know, I just think that somebody that grew up with your life situation probably shouldn't work alone. Should I either get a business partner or I should get a real job again? Yeah, yeah. And so I, my best friend has learned the skills of a producer. He's now much more talented than I am. It has totally changed Is that my right? mood. Yeah, 100%. just kind of having someone else there, a partner, yeah. collaborator, colleague. So I do very little on my own these days. Yeah, I think that's true. Even in academia, I, I mean, I hear you. I, I feel like the best times I've had, the best ideas we've had, has always been an interaction, collaboration. Seldom is just like sitting alone in my room like a lone thinker, like that Rodin sculpture. It's, it's not a good life. And I don't even think Rodin thought that was a good, it a has good situation. Such sexy branding, though. <laughs> yeah, it has such right? sexy branding. Alone in your study, working on your masterpiece. Yeah. And then you reveal it to the world. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, and there's a reason why Rodin put the thinker in one of his other pieces up on top of the gates of hell, mm. looking down all the suffering, like unable to do anything. And maybe it's all about that. It's like isolation will not get you very far. Being stuck in your own mind won't get you very far. So I I do think social is kind of what we're made to do. We're kind of built to connect. And we love connection. 
But so much of life kind of derails that and so many things, I think, our culture, but also our kind of psychological biases, what we think is good for us might not necessarily be good for us, like effective forecasting errors is what they're called. We make these kind of assessments about what will bring us happiness, and they're often kind of wrongheaded. They come more from our culture than from what we really, truly feel inside in our heart. I think your experience is really good. And what you did too, which is really interesting, you kind of experimented, right? So I think a lot of this comes from putting yourself, going outside your comfort zone and trying something a little different, experiment. Because too often we get stuck in these like little ruts where eh, they kind of work, this kind of lifestyle is working, so I'll just keep doing more of the same. We might even do more of it, but we don't really change the channel and try something altogether different from what we're used to, maybe as much as we should. And what you did is really interesting and is consistent with research on positive psychology and happiness, where just kind of putting yourself outside your comfort zone turns out to be really beneficial, especially if you're low in happiness at the, at the outset. Doing something a little random every now and then, experimenting, because you never know. Well, like green eggs and ham. You never know. Maybe it'll taste good. <laughs> you won't know until you try it. <laughs> It's uh, Yeah, I mean, there was, I just want to say, there's severe anguish that led to me trying new things. It was just clearly not working the yeah. way it was. But I was lucky enough to to have a couple things as evidence. I got sober in a community. I was kind of raised in a community because I had a single mom. So a lot of people had to take shifts. And so I just had this one baseline, which was, all right, I used to be a meth head. Hmm. I used to be such a fuck up. Somehow the group helped me do this near impossible thing. Yeah. So maybe it will work with business too. And maybe it will work with the things that I dread the most. And before we even worked together, Reese would come over on tax day and help me do my taxes and was mostly just there to witness me, put my butt in the chair and make sure it got done. It's like, there's all these funny things that happen in my mind and the way that they yeah. get built up. Why do you think it took you so long to try that? Pride. Yeah. You know? Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Pride gets in the way. I think that's a, that's a good answer. I think yeah. I'm a proud man. Like I uh, think it would be fun to say oh, I built this whole thing on my own, except I tried and I tried and I tried. And then it turns out like, oh, I can't actually do that. Yeah, that's true. I kind of vulnerability. Brene Brown had this part right, that kind of putting yourself out there and making yourself vulnerable is really, in a safe environment, it can be so healthful. And, and we don't really do enough of that. Yeah. And to feel, and you kind of get to feel known, feel known. That's, that's really, feel seen. And that's really important. Just uh, to touch on the culture, American culture thing. I mean, it's interesting. I think it was an interesting experiment that there was this huge landmass, right? You could go out into the frontier, you could build your castle, you could have this total kingdom of your own. But I don't think it works as well as uh, high density areas that have had to be more communal. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And it's a kind of weird thing. Like Tocqueville, when he came to America like centuries ago, he's like, you know, what's really cool about America is like it's both individualistic and collectivistic at the same time, right? Like individualistic, like there's no aristocracy. You can become, you can explore the frontier, create your castle for some, not all, of course. But at the same time, the problems of the frontier require people to work together in common purpose. So there's a lot in America that was really communal and collective that came out of that tradition. Like we're working together to explore the frontier. We're working together to create a new business. America pioneered the corporation, which is like people working together to make a buck, create a business. Communalism has always been kind of part of our culture, but we kind of 
uh, Putnam, Rar Putnam talks about this. We kind of go in, in pendulum. It's like a pendulum where sometimes we forget. We kind of become really individualistic and that collective, the importance of communalism kind of fades from our awareness for various reasons. But I think both go hand in hand. I always feel yeah. like that. So you really need other people to be an individual. They support you in your individuality. You became, and then your story, more of who you are through your relationships and collaboration. That's a perfect segue. So speaking about being an individual, being a functioning, healthy, human, mammal, Mm -hmm. individual on planet Earth in 2022, what drew you to this body of work? What made you go, yeah, that's where I want to spend my time. That's what I want to sacrifice my life to, Mm. is the study of how we belong to groups and how we socialize. It's interesting. It's a great question. I think it wasn't an abrupt decision. It was something that just kind of happened like a process. And over time, then I was like, "Where? oh, this is kind of a unifying theme in a lot of the work that my lab and I do. I think there were three things. One is kind of growing up, I think, feeling much of the time I don't think I was unique in this way, but it was pretty acute for me at various points in my life, feeling like an outsider. So I've always been interested in this sort of psychology of the outsider. Tell me about those early experiences. Yeah, I think I was growing up in New Jersey as a pretty shy kid in middle school, seventh grade, eighth grade, especially especially middle school, which is really a hard time for a lot of kids. So I, I'm not saying I'm special in this way, but I do f- feel like I didn't have many friends at that time. It changed when I got to high school. I was very nerdy, very nerdy. I played with computers and video games, which now is all the rage. I feel like if I had been that kid now, I'd be like on top of the popularity hierarchy. (laughs) Uh, So that was part of it, that kind of being a nerd, being an outcast, I think that was part of it. And I think that makes one wonder about what does it take to be on the in crowd? What does it take to fit in? Is it something about what I'm wearing, how I'm talking and didn't seem to be any of those things. And that just kind of made me curious as a, and this is probably part of the the roadway to becoming a psychologist, what creates belonging? What leads people to feel accepted? Can you create that moment by moment? And so that was one, that was one influence. I think also when I was starting out as a professor, I felt acute doubt about whether this profession was for me and whether I could do it. I was at a place where there were a lot of sort of grand poobahs of psychology, like these sort of esteemed silverbacks of social psychology. And it really isn't good for your self-esteem being in that environment. Or it can be hard. (laughs) I I liked it a lot, but it was hard. And I remember feeling just doubtful about my belonging, which does something to your mind. I I just noticed this, that I would come home and feel exhausted at the end of the day. And I'd be like, what did I do all day? And what I did all day was just to worry about whether this was something I could do, whether I could fit in. So that's one aspect of this kind of feel psychology of being an outsider, this feeling of not belonging. The other thing it did was it made me kind of vigilant for little things, like little things would start to loom large. So I remember my chair patted me on the back one day and asked me, how's that class going? And I thought, did he hear something? <laughs> I remember it? this in the yeah, book, yeah. Yeah, that's right. And so little things loom large. And all these experiences contribute to an interest in in the psychology of belonging. And then another really important influence was my own people. So a close colleague of mine, Greg Walton, worked with me and remains a close colleague to this day. And we worked together. He had a very strong interest in belonging. And we did some great research together at the time. And it was thanks to him and other people in the lab that we really started to delve into this problem at a time when I don't think many, I mean, people were, but it wasn't like a mainstream topic the way it was, the way it is now. 
My own mentor, Claude Steele, who I've learned so much from, he really influenced me in a lot of ways just through his example. I mean, he is an amazing crafter of situations interpersonally. He can kind of create a situation, make people feel at ease and comfortable and, and bring out their best, including students when I was one of them. And so that was really interesting to me. How does he kind of create these inclusive spaces, right? Moment to like just in a situation. He's such a such a decent human being, but skilled human being. He also professionally or intellectually was interested in how negative stereotypes can erode people's sense that they're accorded a full measure of worth in other people's eyes. He came up with this idea of stereotype threat that being the subject or being targeted by negative stereotypes can really be a painful experience and make people feel like they don't belong, which can have devastating consequences for their school achievements, say, or their performance in health. So I think it was this kind of swirl of things, my own background, the people that I met, my own experiences that kind of contributed to this interest, which really kind of is more kind of retrospective assessment. I thought it really is about belonging, but it's really something that was post hoc, thinking through what a lot of our research was all about is, you know, it's actually about belonging and how to create it. Belonging, its importance and our ability in almost every interaction to create it. As you're talking, I'm remembering, so I was terribly shy. Like I didn't talk much to my peers until maybe sixth grade. I was just like a really shy guy. I was just connecting with that while you were talking. And I was remembering how when I would go into these situations like school, I would feel like a observer, right? Like I was on the outside looking in and just didn't understand how this came so naturally. Other people are socializing and the boys are teasing the girls. And I'm going, how can they possibly feel confident to tease the girl? Right, Because maybe I wanted to tease the girl, but I couldn't dream of possibility where that would be. So there was this total otherness growing up. Everybody understood something that I just didn't seem to hmm. understand. Yeah. I, and where does this come from? This feeling of being outside? I'm not quite sure. I'm not quite sure. I mean, for a lot of people, especially people who are coming from more marginalized backgrounds, yeah, I I really get that, especially being in school where one is dealing with pervasive negative stereotypes and expectations and microaggressions. I get that, but this is kind of a little bit different. And I haven't really thought about it that much, but where does that come from? Shyness is a part of it. Maybe social anxiety too is part of it. Yeah, it could be anxiety. It could be that I didn't have a father. It could be that I didn't go get socialized early enough. Like I would love for there yeah. to be just an obvious point, but it's something that I have worked on. And recently I felt like, oh, well, you know, I'm this introvert who's learned how to extrovert and I'm a good flirt, right? Mm -hmm. I've become charming and I've learned how to schmooze a room and a podcast and I speak to audience sometimes. So I didn't really connect with that shyness until I got put in a situation with 30 strangers who I didn't know in this kind of workshop where all of a sudden I felt it again. And I was like, you haven't fixed this issue. You've just been playing to a home field advantage. <laughs> exactly. Right? Because, if he comes back at those I'm moments. terrified, right? Yeah. <laughs> there are situations that I've learned to navigate really well, like a party. I can, I can dodge the dance floor like an expert, mm -hmm. you know? I can dodge it so well, I've convinced myself that I'm simply not dancing because I just had better things to do. But in this situation, unfortunately, we were forced to dance in front of each other, right? And so I'm feeling all these feelings that I'd been able to avoid and going, wow, you really still are like a scared little kid in there. Yeah. And it was an interesting connection back yeah. to that. Oh, man, that's such a great story. I mean, we, we do come up with our own little adaptations right. <laughs> to prevent us from stepping into those situations where we feel like, man, I'm going to... 
I'm going to feel like that scared little kid again. And we get pretty good at that and have the resources to do that more and more as we get older, at least many of us. So we don't put ourselves out there that way. Kind of going back to my experience starting off as a professor, I was like, oh man, how am I going to teach this course? I would spend the whole week preparing for one 45-minute class all day because I was just so anxiety-ridden about it. And I was coming out of graduate school where I had felt pretty good about myself and I kind of created a situation for myself where I felt pretty confident and I could do research most of the time. But then thrown into the job of an assistant professor, now I have to teach. Being a somewhat socially anxious person, especially back then, especially kind of introvert like you, I think I lean more towards introversion, but I've kind of extroverted myself over the years. But back then I was really pretty painfully shy. It was really hard. And I felt like that scared little kid almost all the time. I have one day of relief after I taught the course, but then kind of return the next next week. And I don't know, I do feel, I don't know if you feel this way, but we're all kind of like that. We can all be put in these situations where we return to that scared little kid. I don't think I'm that unique. I don't think you're that unique. No. Just a guess. <laughs> but we can be pretty good at crafting situations where that part of us isn't tapped into. But that's kind of a little dangerous too, because then you don't end up learning as much. I always love that work by Kip Williams, where he just brings normal, ordinary people into the lab, has them play like a little video game, cyberball. And it's like a video game with people somewhere in the world they don't even know. And they're passing the ball back and forth on this video game. And then in the middle of the game, the other players, two other players, stop passing the ball to you, your avatar. <laughs> Unbeknownst to the subjects, these avatars are just programmed parts of the, of the game. They're not real people. Anyway, this tiny exclusion for almost any group, introverts, extroverts, people high in self-esteem, low self-esteem, as he puts it, hurts. He finds that it makes people feel disconnected. It makes people feel like they have less control and meaning in their lives. It is a pretty robust effect. You even get this activation in the central nervous system where people's pain regions light up as if it's just a painful experience. So I think those kinds of studies suggest that we're not alone here. I do believe that one of the best things we can do to kind of craft other people's situations with care is to disclose and share. Then you kind of learn you're not alone. I think horrible things is that, especially for kids, is they start to feel isolated or alone. And then they feel bad for being alone. They feel even more isolated, which makes them feel even worse, which makes them feel even more isolated. And they get into this kind of mental loop that can take you to some pretty bad places. I think we're all like this to some varying degree. Maybe there's some exceptions, like narcissists. I don't know. In recovery, there's a phrase for people who really struggle to get sober using the group, and we call them terminally unique Hmm. Right, And there are people who think that they're, they've gone so low and they've screwed up so badly that somehow this thing that's worked for so many people just somehow will not work for them. Whoa, I love that Terminally phrase. unique, yeah. I, I'm going to use that. Terminally unique. So why should we care? Like if we're lonely, if we feel like outsiders, why should we take that seriously? Uh, there's a number of reasons. One is chronic feelings of exclusion. Feeling this in a prolonged way is really bad for us health-wise, because evolutionarily we're a social species, so built into our DNA is that need to connect. We needed to connect to survive. We still need to connect to survive. So an acute experience of isolation or exclusion is, we'll recover from that, but if we experience it day in and day out, that can be just awful for our health, and that's been shown. Steve Cole at UCLA Medical School and also John Cassiopo passed away. He was a pioneer of research on loneliness. They put it this way, that loneliness is 
one of the worst known environmental toxins we know. We understand how bad radon and cigarette smoking are, but loneliness, just as bad, just as bad, chronic loneliness. Um, What's it it do to the body? It does many things. One that I am very interested in that seems to be very important is it creates inflammation, bodily inflammation. Steve, this is Steve Cole again. He does these studies that show that when we experience chronic loneliness, our genes start to function differently. And in particular, we kind of go into this fight or flight mode. Our central nervous system says, you're alone, which tells our body, Jesus, you better get ready for some physical danger, right? There's threat because we know biologically, at a biological level, we know that being alone makes us very vulnerable to physical harm. And so what happens is genes responsible for bodily inflammation turn on. They're more activated, actually. That's good in the short term because if your bodily inflammation gets you ready for physical wounding, right? And so if you're wounded, being inflamed in that way is good for healing. (laughs) But if it's turned on all the time, that's a big problem because it saps away a lot of bodily, I guess you could call it energy that could go elsewhere. So for instance, we become then much more vulnerable to viral infection because the body isn't putting as much effort into protecting us against viral infection as it is against bacterial infection. Because of this inflammation, more susceptible to various diseases, including obesity, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, these diseases of distress, as as they've been called. Deaton and Case, two economists, refer to it as diseases of despair, too, that people as a result of being chronically lonely also feel anxious and depressed and hopeless. And they ascribe, as I remember, roughly 180,000 extra deaths per year to these diseases of despair in which people kill themselves, essentially, through addiction, through suicide. They argue it's due largely to the pain of social disconnection. So for our mental health, our bodily health, loneliness is one of the worst things for us. One of the worst things for us. On the other hand, yeah, it's kind of good to be an outsider a little bit. I had one relative to say this, you know, I always felt like an outsider and it made me more creative, made me more interesting. And I totally agree with that. I totally agree with that. That the kind of being an outsider is actually a kind of very rich source of creativity and innovation and the arts and the sciences. Yeah, but artists aren't known for their peak physical health. Maybe, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, not academics either. So I think we're onto something here. <laughs> I, I think you're, you're, yeah, you might be onto something there. On the, on the other hand, yeah, it's like a little bit of that might be okay. It's just you don't want it to be a chronic and pervasive part of your life. You need some port on the shore, I think. If you don't have that, it can be really harsh, harmful. Too many people have it. I mean, now it's like, I think the figure is about 20% of Americans are lonely, chronically lonely. Yeah. Uh, Oh, I think that's probably underestimated too. Yeah. One of the things I loved about your book, I did feel a deep desire to pull people together. As I read your book, I noticed that all the cheap shots you could have taken at what I perceive as your political opponents, you didn't take, right? And you didn't say... Oh, well, it's those other guys, right? Like at every moment you possibly could, it felt like you wanted to invite everybody back into the table. That's a commitment that I have. We edit out every mention of political party or a leader on this program because we're having great conversations and I don't want somebody to tune out because they go, oh, that's not one of mine, right? That's, uh, That's a them, that's not an us. That commitment to, I think, 
writing in integrity to what you're actually preaching really stood out to me. A lot of my heroes in activism and a lot of my heroes have caved to the pressure of to be like, I'm one of us, right? Mm -hmm. And I felt like you didn't do that Mm. throughout your whole book. And I appreciated that. And the entire time you are wrestling with this idea of how do we get past this trait of humanity, which is that we have in-groups and out-groups. And there was a hope that came along with reading it. Because mm. to me, for the last two years, I've just been going, well, yeah, that's, that's just what we do. Mm. We make in-groups, we make out-groups, we exclude, we enslave, we oppress, right? That's just, that's what we do as humans. And there's a nice warmth I felt with somebody more educated than me at the cutting edge of the research to say, I think I can make dent in this, which mm. is such a big task to take on. On your journey to that, mm. we're an ally if you want to come use our equipment. But I want to oh, know you. what makes you passionate to throw your hat in the ring and say, no, God damn it, there is something we can do. Yeah, well, thank you so much for saying that and observing that. I really, uh, it's such a moving thing to say. Thank you. I, I yeah, what what do you say? I mean, I I really just believe that I having, it's partly personal, partly personal. I, you know, my mom says I, from early on defaulted to thinking that people are just good. And I think as a social psychologist too, that that lesson is reinforced that we are pretty good. I think most of us are pretty good. I, I think that there is just this reservoir of goodwill in people. I We've done these studies on values, just asking people for their values and Almost everyone loves their family. Not everyone, but, you know, but almost everyone has good values. They want connection. They want better lives for themselves and, and the people that they love. Where people get a little led astray is kind of living those values with fidelity in the complexity of a situation. It's very hard, I think, to go from what you truly believe in and remember that in the heat of the moment often, right? First, it's like not forgetting. And then acting in ways that do justice to those values. And in studying this topic and in writing this book, I wanted to give almost like a how-to. So this is how you can understand the situations you're in in a way that will make you happier and other people happier and increase the chances of connection. The other thing is that I do believe we all have the same tragic limitations. And they're not just Shakespearean, they're social psychological. We all stereotype, we all engage in confirmation bias. We all engage in what Lee Ross and others call the objectivity illusion. We think that if we think it, it must be true. (laughs) I'll do this. We all engage in, again, what Lee Ross called the fundamental attribution error. We think if someone's behaving objectionably, it must be something about them that made them do it rather than something about their circumstances that we're just not aware of or we're ignoring. Uh, All those biases are biases that we all share, and ironically, biases that divide us, pull us apart. So I think by becoming aware, we're more likely to hopefully create a little hope, I think. I think. So my hope in the spaces where I try to build little communities, Hmm. I'd like to build a community where a flat earther and a cosmologist could share an emotional cup of tea. Yeah, How do I do that? How do you facilitate situation craft in a way where you don't get hung up on the points that divide you? Yeah. You 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 don't end up in the absolute places of no agreement. Yeah. How do you situation craft? So situation crafting is the art of creating situations that bring out our 
personal collective best where people, you can be yourself and other people can be yourself and we can kind of connect. We were at least a little more likely to connect. And the book says that you, who you are, has more to do with the situation than the you. Yes. Yeah. That's oftentimes the case. At least we underestimate how important the situation is. We think we're behaving as we do because of character and personality, but often it's the situation we're in. Like at the beginning, you gave this example, the chair is arranged. Like we may have had a very different conversation had we been angled more towards the camera. But we tend to neglect the features of the situation that make us feel and think and behave as as they do. The irony is that as part of the situation, we share some of the power. So that was like the little twist I kind of have on the power of the situation. It's like, yeah, I'm part of your situation. You're part of my situation. So we can change it. We can, by saying or doing things a little differently, make the situation a little better for each other. So I think when there's disagreement, that is possible. When there's agreement, obviously that's possible. When there's differences by race or fault lines, by politics, race, ethnicity, national, it's possible. It's possible. And and one of the great things I got to do that I just love is just talk about these great studies that show, yeah, this is within sight. This is possible. We have the sense, I think, that things don't change because we keep turning up the volume of what we've always been doing rather than change the channel and try something altogether differently. One of my favorite examples of this is some work in just how to have good political conversations across political divides. I guess there's maybe three things you could say. I mean, there's many, but this is work by Michael Schwabe, David Brookman, and Josh Kala. The first thing is, it's not so much what you do, it's what you don't do that's important. They create these very structured conversations across political lines that actually lead to enduring transformation. People's like political attitudes become more empathic towards struggling individuals on the conservative side. And what they don't do is they don't lecture. They don't engage in any kind of strong-arm salesmanship. They're not like bombarding you with facts and evidence. That doesn't work. People get reactive. They don't like that. It threatens their sense of self. So that's absent. Instead, what they do is two other things. They, they listen so they'll ask good questions. They'll ask good questions like, have you heard about this issue with uh, transgender rights that you'll be voting on in your community? Have you just heard about it? What do you think about it? Here's a video. Let's talk about it. What do you think? And they listen. So non-judgmental conversation. That's one aspect. And by the way, this is always apart from people's existing groups. So it's not like Democrats and Republicans are talking to each other in groups. They pull each other away from the group. So it's like just a kind of one-on-one encounter. No pack mentality. Going no on. pack mentality. You get people away from the group which is actually really key. It's the group that is the barrier. Your group pressures are the barrier to change. It's almost like you're creating a new group. It's you and me here. We're creating a new understanding together. The third thing that they do is something very interesting. It's called analogic empathy. They ask the person, if it's a liberal talking to a conservative, for instance, and they're talking about transgender rights, an issue that many conservatives are not that into and even opposed to, the liberal will ask, the canvasser will ask, we all have felt treated unfairly or judged unfairly because there's something about us that we can't change. How does that feel? And have you ever experienced that? So it's asking the other person not to put themselves in the shoes of this struggling individual, a, a transgender individual, but to imagine a time when they had an emotional experience similar. It's a sort of common humanity. And people will talk about things like one individual who came back from Iraq, he fought in Iraq, had PTSD. And he said, you know, actually, I've not been able to get a job because I have PTSD. That's kind of similar. I feel, feels terrible. It feels terrible and so unfair. And that 
helped to bridge this divide of empathy. He could start to feel what a transgender individual might feel because of their experience and what we could do as a society to make things better. And he became more empathic towards it. So those kinds of situation crafting where it's partly about understanding what makes people connect. And oftentimes it's feeling listened to. So listening is so huge here. Not feeling attacked, saying things like, I think, you know, from my point of view, this is, you know, I'm thinking aloud here. I don't know what you think. Tapping into the heart because as Marshall Rosenberger, the king of nonviolent communication, wonderful man, wonderful book, wonderful research. He was famous for having these difficult conversations with difficult people, bigots, people who are prejudiced. And he's like, one thing I've learned is I just don't pay too much attention to what's in people's heads. I instead listen to their hearts. And I found that makes me so much more understanding. It makes life so much more enjoyable. Don't get too hung up on what's in their heads. Because I think the research suggests this, once people connect, their heart comes first. Then their heads often follow along with a little support. I mean, I'm not diminishing the importance of information and arguments, but you got to open people's hearts first. And I think that's what the work suggests. Relate. So that's just one example of a little thing. They find that these 10-minute conversations have these whopping lasting effects on people's understanding across political divides. Also, even just little things that Michael Schwabe has investigated, just saying, I think, before I give my political view, I think mm. this candidate is good or bad, rather than just saying this candidate is good or bad, leads to less polarization and vilification. And it even makes the person talking a little bit more open to the other side. If I gave you a conference room and 100 mm. people are in it and I said, 50 of these people are going to engage in politically motivated violence against 50 other of these people in this room. And you have no idea which or which, but I'm going to give you an hour with them. Can you prevent all 50 instances of violence from happening later this year? What would you do in Mm. that situation? How would you set that up? Oh man, that's such a great question. Well, the answer is, I'm not sure, but here's my first guess. I think the power of connecting over common cause, that has been shown in in so much social psychological research to just be such a great bonding agent. There's just this classic research in social psychology over the decades that they've done showing that, yeah, people often act violently and with prejudice because of the situations that they're in. And it's often this sense of threat and competition over scarce resources that divides people and even can lead them to violence. But you can create situations that connect people together with what the researchers call superordinate goals. And these are goals that you really need each other to accomplish, and you accomplish them together. It doesn't really take much. You can kind of be working together to clean up the room, doing something together like an academic assignment together, or getting to know each other through questions. I, this, the purpose of this time together is for us to get to know each other better and having structured questions where we're understanding each other with increasing intimacy. The, these kinds of things turn out to be really, really effective and bring people together in common cause. In, in the book, I tell the story of C.P. Ellis back in the 70s, who was a- The Klan member? Yeah, the Klan yeah. member. The Klan member who was uh, became the Ku Klux Klan Grand Wizard. He came back to the fold and became an advocate for civil rights and a representative who won the votes of, I think, the majority of black constituents for as a union leader later. And what happened to him? He worked in common cause 
with a black civil rights leader, Anne Atwood, trying to deal together with the problem in their community of how do we school our kids when one of the schools burned down. They had a series of meetings together. They got to know each other, got to understand each other, got to relate to each other. They both had kids that were humiliated in school, hers because they were her kid was black, his because he was in the Ku Klux Klan and the teacher humiliated his kid. And they bonded over this. They came together. CPL tore up his Ku Klux Klan card in front of the committee that he was head of, in, in charge of, in front of the community, in front of the, the, the community gathering. He tore it up and he changed. And I think that kind of thing, where you're bringing two people together to work together in common cause. This is why the military, uh, military service, is so effective in creating cross-race relationships, enduring cross-race relationships. Talk to me about that. So, and the military has done tons of research. Yeah. So what, yep. what, what did they do? Fight together. Cooperate together. Because Vietnam, Vietnam was a huge moment of white kids from the South and black people from the inner cities coming together. Yep. Fighting together. Not that I'm pro-war at all, but working together in common cause where not only are do we need each other to meet our goal, but we need each other to survive. And there are bonds that are formed like nothing else in the military, the research suggests. Especially if you see battle together, then that actually, it's been shown, increases the likelihood of lasting friendships. And even some research suggests, suggests reduces prejudice, though that's a little weaker. It kind of creates these lasting friendships. Whether or not it generalizes the whole group is, is a little little mixed. But I this works a lot better than just lecturing people on right. how bad it is to hate. That's just too much of the strategy, I think, in so many of our workplaces and our schools, diversity training. Now, I mean, some diversity training is good, but in our schools with programs to promote tolerance, it's all information campaigns. Not all, but a lot of it. What really works is bringing people together in common cause, helping them to discover their shared humanity, getting to know each other. There's so many ingredients in this, I could spell them out, but you kind of learn that they're more of an individual. I don't didn't stereotype them that way. Work by, I, I just got to make one plug for this, Elliot Aronson on what's called the Jigsaw Classroom, created enduring positive relationships between Latino kids, black kids, and black kids, and white kids, and reduce prejudice, and improve the performance of minority students in school by creating what they call the Jigsaw Classroom, in which all the kids have to work together in these small pods to learn the lesson plan together. And they found that this little tweak in how the class was structured had these incredible effects. So so how might a mm-hmm. department head bring that into their organization? Because mm. that's one of yeah. the, the hopes of mine is to really work towards inspiring the employers and the leaders and the people who can make that choice. Like, you know what? I think, what if we did pay a better wage? What if we did make these small choices? Jonathan Haidt said, well, I think we had better conditions because we had this great world war, Mm. right? We had this one unified thing. So you might be director of a department, but the janitor of that floor also fought in the war. So you looked at each other a little bit with more connection. How do we create, and I don't want to say artificially because I don't want to create artificial connection, but how do we, if we have a longing in our heart Mm. to use our trickster energy Mm. right to start bringing people together who might not know each other yeah maybe it's through throwing parties maybe it's through creating community events yeah based off the research that you found what works yeah well so many things with a caveat that not everything works all the time I, i see social psychology at least these kinds of activities as it's a little, a little like medical science. You could try one thing based on your diagno- diagnostics and maybe it'll work, maybe not. You got to kind of go back and try other things. But the research suggests creating 
These sorts of community or departmental events where people are working together in common cause under equal status conditions. So that's important. We have to be kind of cooperating together. The situation has to be crafted in a way where I'm not doing all the work, you're not doing all the work, and we really do need each other. Uh, that's what's great about a lot of the kind of trickster energy, let's call it, in social psychology, where they create these situations where, yet yeah, it's actually in our self-interest to cooperate. Elliot Aronson's jigsaw is like you and I, if we're in one of these classes, you get one piece of the lesson plan, say about the life of Abraham Lincoln, like his early, his early life. I get another piece of the curriculum, say his later life. And then in order to learn the whole lesson, we got to work together. We have to cooperate. So the situation is kind of bent in a way that requires us to cooperate. It makes it in our own self-interest to cooperate and also creates this interesting dynamic where we're each giving a gift to each other. And giving gifts is so powerful. When we behave in generous ways towards others, I'm giving you my knowledge, I'm helping you, then our hearts and minds often change. And so one thing is you often want to just tweak and change behavior first. And people through this kind of self-perception process say, oh, I must like this person. I'm giving a gift to you. You're giving a gift to me, but I'm giving a gift to you. It's like that old <laughs> Benjamin Franklin story where he wanted to win the approval or affection of an elder statesman. And what he did was instead of giving the statesman a gift, he asked if he could borrow the statesman's book. I heard the same is true for dating. Yeah, that interesting. If, if you get the other person to do nice things for you, somewhere along the chain, it goes, oh, I'm doing something nice. I must be fond of this person. This is why, I, as I remember, ahava, I think in Jewish tradition, is the word for love has within it the word forgive, mm. meaning that love comes from giving, which I love. <laughs> I think that's so true. You kind of by giving you you love. It's not, it's not that love comes first, according to this idea. It's that first you behave as if you love, and then your heart and your mind follow. I think that that's true in kind of creating these, in creating relationships, for sure. Giving is so important. In bridging divides, giving is, begin with giving. Begin with giving. What's key in all these studies, like the Jigsaw Classroom, is that the giving has to feel personally chosen. It won't work if I'm forced to give a gift to you or if I'm forced to be generous to you. I have to ha have that sense of choice. And that's why these situations where we have to work together to learn this curriculum make it in people's own self-interest to give, to be generous, to be both a teacher and a student with one another. It, it's like, now I want to do it. This is the game we're playing, and I want to win at this game. In order to win this game, I got to give. I think that these kinds of things where there is so much. I mean, another great example is these, uh, this research on the 36 questions by the two Aarons, Art Aaron and Elaine Aaron, two psychologists, where, and I've done this. Oh, to make <clears throat> you fall in love with the other person. Make you fall in yeah. love, right? This stuff works. This stuff works. Pretty powerful. Uh, you begin with like some innocuous questions like, who would you invite to dinner? Who would you invite to dinner if you could? Anyone from history? And then over 36 questions, they get a little more intimate. By the end, you're asking the question, if this was your last day on earth, what would you say to the people you love? And why haven't you said it? And by the end, people are really, yeah, they've disclosed, they've shared. They've shared something deep. And this thing really works. And it bridges divides across race, bridges divides across political. Actually, it hasn't been shown in politics. I think that would be an interesting place to, to look at it, but divides across race. It, it makes people feel connected, huge effect sizes, even when they disagree on important issues. 
So that kind of thing is really pretty powerful too. We could do that. We could do things like that. Now, the issue of creating connection, right, is different from the issue of sustaining it. So I do think it's relatively, not easy, but with good strategy to create connection. But then how do you sustain it through time? It's a different problem. And I think the answer is you got to kind of create these recurring opportunities for us to connect, much like what we have in many kind of small villages, small towns where we're all seeing each other on a regular basis and having regular opportunities to kind of engage and re-engage. We're not kind of growing apart or becoming segregated. Segregation is a really bad thing now, especially with the political divide. Democrats and Republicans just don't inter- interact oh, with each other. Me. Yeah. yeah. When you look at the, the data of like what Facebook delivers to liberals versus what Facebook delivers to conservatives. And you're like, oh, we're people are just in different universes, different like universe. completely different information. Universes. It's so it's so yeah. striking. It's so straight. And geographically, more and more research suggests, uh, I think in an average day, I believe 20, I might get this wrong, but I think it's 20 million for 20 million voters in America. One in 10 of their daily interactions is with one with someone from the other side. So if you're not seeing the other person, your heart's not going to be open to them. You're going to have, uh, you know, one of my favorite writers is James Baldwin. And he talks mm-hmm. about the effects of racial segregation years, in, you know, back when he was writing during mostly uh, 50s, 60s, 70s. He calls it poverty of empathy. When, we're, when we don't know each other, we have this poverty of empathy. We don't really feel with the other person. If we don't feel with the other person, then we're not going to hear the reasons why they are doing what they're doing. And we're not going to really care. We'll be indifferent, right? That Elie Wiesel quote too is like really powerful. The, the opposite of, of love is not hate. It's indifference. Indifference. We'll just be indifferent. We just don't care. Right. I don't care. And so I think in all that ways, there's so much going against us. Segregation, the digital social media environment, as you point out. But still, nevertheless, every day we can make like these little choices that help. The th- great thing about these little things, like, I'm a social psychologist, and I'm so fascinated by situations. Situations I see as sacred, especially these interpersonal ones where this is unique. We've never, this situation never happened before where we are right now. By doing little things, we can kind of unlock its potential. And if we all do them bit by bit over many situations, that can add up to a huge, huge, huge effect over time for us individually. But if we're all doing it, I just think that there's so much reason to be hopeful in spite of these kind of formidable forces at work. Wow. One thing that really helped me with depression was I was reading, God, I'm forgetting his name, the guy who founded CBT therapy. What's his name? Uh, it was that Beck, uh, Aaron was it, Beck. Was it Aaron Beck? It yeah. might have been. Yeah. yeah. And he said in, in his kind of like long study working with a ton of depressed people, he said, you know, the most common three beliefs I find with them is I'm terrible, the world is terrible, and the future is bleak. Hmm. Right with with all depressed people, you know, a huge percentage of depressed people, and so whenever I'm not feeling great, those are kind of like my first three check ins. It's like, how do I feel about myself? How do I feel about the future? How do I feel about the world? Right, and that kind of helps me kind of get back on the track of, oh, I think you're in some catastrophic thinking, or I think something Uh, has kind of gone a little bit wrong. If you think that you're terrible this morning, or you're feeling a little terrible about yourself because nothing's really that terrible, and you're treating people well, and just to get my thoughts back on track, but. That's nice. So it's like a litmus test. It's yeah, like it's a way to check in. It's like, okay, this is something about how I'm thinking right now that that's to blame. And I was wondering in, in your research, like what would be a good check to feel like, 
am I nourished in community? Am I belonging? Like if one of your kids called you from college, yeah, you were a little worried of that, oh, maybe they're they're not belonging in the way that my research, my life's work has shown is so important. What questions would you ask them to kind of tease that out of them? to see? Oh, okay. I'm going to give you one boring but useful answer and one maybe somewhat more creative answer, but great, great points. I love that point of the litmus test being... Yeah, just as you have this like a global negative view, then you kind of start to realize, okay, this is something about the state of mind I'm in, not about my reality, my, my object, so-called objective reality. Um, so the, the simple answer is there's a lot of great clinical scales right now. Uh, the UCLA loneliness scale turns out to be, and it's available online, it, it's very predictive. It's a great way. And it's just a, a questionnaire where you're People are just asked the degree to which they feel lonely. I think that's even one of the answer, one of the questions. I feel lonely. I feel like there's not much to look forward to in my life. And that is actually, as I remember, that is almost better than any other clinical diagnostic predictor of bad health and even physical illness than even like anxiety or depression. So the UCLA loneliness scale is one great diagnostic. So that's one answer. A, a second answer, I think. I feel this in my own life is if I get out with friends or kind of hang out with my family, do I notice a change? Do I feel better? Do I feel, yeah, just like a little more light? And if I do, that's a sign that, okay, my baseline may not be as good as it could be. Mm. Now, of course, we're always going to feel a little bit better, but if there's like a fundamental change, like, yeah, there's just an energy I feel here that I, you know, when I go home, I just want more of it. So your experimental method, I think, is really good this way. Like you, you realize the contrast right when you start to feel good. It's like, oh my god, I was feeling so bad for so long. I didn't even realize it because we can get really kind of habituated to our adversities. So maybe that's another example. Maybe that's another way to find out. You just put yourself out there, see how it makes you feel. You kind of have those authentic connections. Maybe join join a volunteer group. Those are excellent. Join, yeah, yeah right? Those are excellent. That's been shown to be very effective at boosting people's sense of connection and well-being and even health. How does it make you feel? That tells you, okay, maybe you need a little bit more of that in your life. Circling back to cognitive behavioral therapy, there's some lovely research out of University of Washington showing that, yeah, helping people think about their thoughts and reshaping them, the way they're looking at the world is good. But actually what also works, maybe even better, is what's called behavioral activation. Just have people get out there into the world, start exercising, go to the gym, call a friend, have a social night, get on a kind of social train. And that actually works really well, even without the cognitive part of the cognitive behavioral therapy. And so maybe that kind of fits with this. You start to kind of just give yourself sustenance and you think, oh, wait, I should just do more of this. And then you're on this kind of feedback loop that might help you break free. Wow. I love that. What do you teach? And what's what's your book? I work both in the Department of Psychology and in the Graduate School of Education. My book is entitled Belonging, The Science of Creating Connection and Bridging Divides. And what's it about? It is about the importance of connection and our ability to create it, even in the most unlikely of places. How big are your classes at Stanford? I tend to teach seminars. Last night, it was pretty big, like 50, 50 people. 50? Yeah, Great. which is okay. a little too big, but yeah. No, I just needed to know. Okay, yeah. so... Jeff, if I said, hey, Jeff, bad news, you're going to die in five years. Yeah. Uh, the good news is you're no longer teaching kids to get a um, degree. That's not your job anymore. Your job is to activate the 50 students every semester in your class to go be activators out into the world. Mm. So you're going to build community builders. Mm. That's your new project. 
I want you to create a social revolution in the next five years before you die. I love that. What right? a great question. <laughs> where, where, where am I? I, I got to start thinking about that. Yeah, yeah, where am I thinking about that now? That's really great. Yeah, cool. Well, that's your assignment yeah, for the next five revolution. years. Yeah. Go create a little magic everywhere. Yeah. Create a little magic. Create a little magic. Because that's what this stuff is, I feel. It's, it's a little magical. I mean, I'm not, I'm a scientist. I believe, so, <laughs> yeah. But, you know, when you look at the effects of creating belonging, it is a little like magic. I mean, when people feel connected, they're more likely to take on challenges. They're more generous towards others, less, less defensive. People are more willing to take responsibility for their actions. If there's anything that's like magic in psychology, it's belonging. So create a little magic. How could we do this? This is a good idea. Yeah, that's why I just- This is a great idea. You wrote the book. It's out now. Mm-hmm. What's, what's next? Well, I'm on sabbatical, Good. so I'm going to do some traveling, see some friends, right? Kind of try and nourish my own connections. I could probably work on a bit. The book, the book was pretty all-consuming. It was pretty all-consuming. So my students, because they're the future. So trying to really help them to make the most of their time in graduate school and do really great work. That's another big commitment that I've decided to make. I'm doing, I'm giving a lot of talks and workshops uh, related to the book, to different kinds of venues, trying to just kind of get the the ideas and the insights out there because I really just believe in them. So I, as an academic, I spent my life kind of doing research and doing studies, scientific studies and teaching. And so I feel like one of the roles I'd like to embrace now is trying to give back, give this gift, give this gift to the world. I mean, a book I do feel like is your gift to the world if you take it seriously. It's like your, I feel like it's my gift to the world. Now, as we know with gifts, you never know. People might not <laughs> like it. Who knows? But it's the best I could do. So I want to kind of get it out there more. Give it where people would be happy to get it. Courageously working towards what's possible. And you, having actually made this your career, knowing what you think is possible in terms of building communities, building a world with greater sense of belonging and finding ways to bridge these very hard gaps to bridge. If you could just share a bit of your vision of what you think is possible hmm. with the listeners and maybe recruit them into your vision a bit, hmm. well, that, that, that'll be the final question. Okay, well... <laughs> yeah, recruit us into your vision. <laughs> I have a modest proposal here, but it could be grand, grand, grand in the long term. My philosophy is every single situation can be made at least a little bit better. At work, at school, with kids, with your parenting, with your relationships, every single situation. The lesson in my field is that there's more potential in the situation than we see. Oftentimes, like kids can really excel. I've done research with children from marginalized and underserved groups and just tweaking their situation a bit, asking them a question like, hey, what are your values? What do you care about? unleashes this great potential that had been previously suppressed. They're more likely to get better grades and even go on to college. So that's an example of how in every situation there's more potential for change and connection than we know. And so you can make every single situation at least a little bit better. And then over time, maybe even a lot better. So that's my modest proposal. Just Try to make your situation, especially with other people, a little bit better. It might just be something as simple as, I talk a, a bit about this in the book, The just being polite, saying please, thank you, really meaning it. I do feel like there's not enough politeness in our culture, and that's that's a problem, especially across um, lines of difference. We're not polite, research suggests, across lines of difference. When white officers pull over black drivers, one of the big things that Jennifer Eberhardt and her colleagues finds is that they're just less polite. They don't say thank you, please, 
sir, mm. ma'am, that sends a message that I don't respect you. These little things like that, not committing these biases, right? Giving people the benefit of the doubt where possible. Of course, you don't want to put yourself at risk. I'm not, that's very key. Like don't put yourself in an unsafe situation, but these kinds of little ways in which we can make the situation better by being polite, by not committing the fundamental attribution error, by having a little humility about our own points of view, such as don't believe everything you think. I love that motto. I saw it on a bumper sticker, like kind of thinking, okay, just because I thought it doesn't make it true. And really realizing that the way we read people might be very off. Getting in touch with our core values, getting to know people's core values, all these like little things can have huge effects. So my modest proposal is just, is just that each of us as caretakers of one another's situations can do at least a little bit to make them go better and to bring out everyone's best. And once in a while, it'll be a lot. So just to quantify the little bit, yeah. by your rough <laughs> estimation, how much more loving would we each have to be to cause some kind of critical mass? I would say, let's say 38% of the population. 38%. That's my guess. And then it kind of takes off. You get a third going. This is just a, now this is not a scientifically based <laughs> ratio, but I think when you have a kind of, when you reach that third, then new norms set in for relating. So maybe that, maybe that, that number kind of work on your headspace and heart space a little bit. These like little things that, that we can do for ourselves, uh, being vulnerable, sharing stories, sharing our values can really help us and help others be in the right headspace and, and heart space. And I don't know how, I, I honestly don't know how that would take off. It's a very good question. No, I, I'm, I'm gonna using write this my trickster energy to plant <laughs> seeds in you. This is great. This right, is a great for, research question. For the question. next body All of right, work. You're, you're totally right. You are totally right. What density do we need? Yeah. To create a new norm. And it's a great research question. I'm an empiricist. So right. this is a good research question. Actually, just like one little tidbit. One of my former students, Joe Powers, did a lovely little study where he found that we do these studies showing that having people write about their most important values, like friendships and compassion, actually improves their school performance, especially if they're from negatively stereotyped backgrounds where they feel like a little undervalued or discredited. Uh, he found that just a tiny shift in the number of students who got that activity, this was kind of a randomized study, so half the kids got it, half the kids didn't, and the half the kids who got ended up performing better. But there was like tiny variation in how many kids, how many kids got it, got this sort of positive activity that focused them on their values. And as I remember, in a class of 20, it'll only take one or two more kids doing that activity to raise the whole performance of the classroom. So that's interesting. I'm going to think about that because yeah, see, it's just a college dropout, right? It doesn't matter what I say. Yeah. But you're <laughs> of course qualified. It does. I saw this book. I thought, oh, great. I'm going to put him on the task of changing the world. This Thank is, you. you know, no, these are great. Not just you writing the book. This is very useful. You are seeding. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I'm learning a ton here too. This is like really very useful, like the kind of the density you need to create a kind of widespread shift in norms. It's a great question. I, I think that I don't think it'll take much because a lot of these things. They're kind of like socially contagious. You start to do them. You Absolutely. start to explore them. And it's like when you see somebody let somebody else go in traffic, mm -hmm. you're probably way more primed to That's let right. the person go. Like, That's right. You're more primed to let the other person go. You start setting positive examples. It becomes a norm. And norms are powerful shapers of behavior. So I can't wait for version one of the prescriptive formula I for, version you one of the prescri call, for you to come and give me a call and say, Sam, oh, like, I got a V1. Let's try it out. So the revolution yeah. for the next five years is one. 
yeah. and the density we need. And maybe that those are two great directions for future research that would really be, those are novel. I haven't thought about that. So thank you. <laughs> thank you for your time and thank you for coming. And I really appreciate the work that you're doing. I think it's courageous work. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Sam. And this has been really stimulating and just a wonderful conversation. What's the best way to stay in touch with you? Is it a newsletter that you put out or is it Instagram or Facebook? I, or? I'm on Twitter. I also have a website and okay. I can be contacted through there. And the website is just my name, Jeffrey L. Cohen, G-E-O-F-F-R-E-Y-L-C-O-H-E-N.com. Anyone who wants to contact me can contact me through the contact page on that, that website. And there's also a lot of resources up there for people who want to try out these activities, at least some of the ones that I talk about in this, in this, in this book. And if somebody wants to know right away when you discover something really cool, is that Twitter? That's where they would yeah. you go, wow, I just got okay. these great... That's Twitter? That's, that's probably Twitter. That's probably okay. Twitter. And uh, I plan, just because the book just came out not too long ago, I, I plan to have more of a blog on the website, but I have not cool. started that yet. You got to do it tonight, probably. I'm, I think I'm yeah, going to do it tonight. tomorrow will always just keep being I'm tomorrow. Leaving, <laughs> <laughs> I'm leaving here inspired. <laughs> cool. Thank you, Jeffrey. Oh, thanks, Sam. Thanks for listening to the How to Human podcast. If you would like more of us, please go to our website at hellohumans.co. If you would love to record your own content in our studio, Square One Studio, please go to www.square1.studio. That's square, the number one, dot studio. And if you would like to support this work and help us to continue on, go to patreon.com slash howtohuman. Thanks for your considering. I hope to earn your support. Until next time, have a great day.